0: Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Nicholas Rapold, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Film Comment. This week we had our latest Film Comment talk at the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and it was a doozy. Boots Riley was here to talk about his new film, Sorry to Bother You, which opened to rave reviews from critics and audiences alike. Riley was joined by a very special guest, Questlove, and a film comic contributor, Fariha Saman, who moderated in front of a packed house. As you'll hear, it was a smart, funny, and candid discussion about making the film and about the creative process generally. Here's the conversation.
1: really excited to talk about this with you guys. I've been just bursting with questions um, since I saw it. I understand that you guys um, have actually uh, had an opportunity to be in discussion in a public forum like this before, but that was before the film came out, right?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. It was centered around Quest Love's book, My so book now yeah. uh, which is about creativity and uh, available now. Thank you for that, man. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> no, and this, so this now is we about you to now. Talk yeah. about this. So... We'll probably be saying a lot of the same shit, yeah.
1: But through the lens of the movie. Um, well, rather than sort of list the, uh, the list of like a dozen or so vocations that I could for each of you, I'd love to um, hear each of you just kind of describe what it is you do in this world.
2: You know, I usually try to keep it to whatever I'm doing right now. So I'm Boots Riley, I'm the writer and director of Sorry to Bother You, and that's all you need to know because it's in theaters right now. Um, further pressed i'd say that i uh have been the uh the leader of a group called the coup uh, yeah. uh since i don't know uh we put out our first album in nineteen ninety three and uh i've been the producer and um yeah. Just uh, been involved in various campaigns and started out as an as a youth organizer who started doing music in order to make what we were doing bigger.
1: Quessa, could you talk about what uh, you
2: do? For the time being,
3: uh, I guess I'm a film connoisseur and and <laughs> no, it's just uh, seriously like I just right now. After seeing this, uh, I feel like I've kind of paled in comparison. So right now, I'm just a Boots Riley uh, fan, <laughs> filmmaker fan, and the lucky seat in the house. No, I mean, OK, so I do The Roots and all that other stuff. <laughs> um, but I'm really trying not to make this anything about me, like, because I have so many questions about the film that I want to ask. So yeah. So right now, I'm just a film fan that big to do this. That's all.
1: Well- <laughs> The talk is definitely going to be um, anchored in the film, so I want to talk about that first. But I think part of the reason why it made sense for this series to bring you two together is because um, we do talk a lot about creative process, and obviously that's something that engages you both explicitly, not not just, hey, I make art, but but thinking about what form that art should take, trying different things, uh, which is rebellious in its own way. Boots, could you talk about the film a little bit, and then just everything we know need to know to um, watch a clip, and then we'll take it from there.
2: Okay. So... This is an absurdist dark comedy with magical realism and science fiction inspired by the world of telemarketing. It's called Sorry to Bother You. In it, Lakeith Stanfield plays Cassius Green, a black telemarketer with self esteem issues and existential angst, who discovers a magical way to make his voice sound like it's overdubbed by a white actor. That white Which actor. Which it in fact
1: is. Yeah, in the movie. <laughs>
2: yeah it, it sounds to his friends like he's overdubbed, and that actor is uh, David Cross. So, um, so how many of you have seen the movie? Yes! Okay.
3: Okay. How many uh, of us have seen it three times, though? Okay, no, no.
1: Super fan status. All right, cool. Uh, cool, let's uh, play the clip.
2: So, so, I should point out, is, and if you've seen it, you know that, uh, that's th- that Danny Glover's speech is severely edited in, in this, and uh, he... One, he says a couple things. He doesn't just say, I'm not talking about Will Smith White. He says, I'm not talking about Will Smith White. That's not white. That's just proper. Just defend his Philly native. And, um, <laughs> which, and then he explains uh, what he's talking about, what the white voice is, and as a, as a performance that even white people do. Um, and, and there's a performance of whiteness that can, that, and, and, in fact, inferring that I, I believe it's inferring that everything we're doing is a performance. But that performance is defined as something that's supposed to make it seem like everything's okay. And um, and I think that that's uh, that that the bills are paid. There's no struggle happening, which I think is like the opposite of what many racist uh, tropes of black people and people of color are, which is that these folks are savage and these folks are, they, they have a culture that's insufficient and that they're in poverty because of you know, the bad choices they've made. And so that that's almost on the, the other spectrum of performance to separate oneself from that.
1: I mean, there are a few times throughout the film where the idea of uh, there's there's racial identity for you, there's racial identity within your community, and then there is an aspect of um, performance. Sometimes, you know, there's there's a couple of pretty explicit scenes where where you know the character is asked to uh, do some specific activities because he's a black man in a mostly white uh, space. Um, uh, Questlove, could you talk about if this is something that you've thought about um, your relationship to this idea in personal, professional life?
3: First, I have to say that everything about this film uh, has spoken to just my journey in life. Like even before I saw this film, Dave Chappelle used to always joke that, you know, in life, there's two codes. You have to, two codes of communications for black people. Ebonics, and what he called job interview. Of which, you know, is, but just the, at one point, you know, because I, like I literally started out as as a telemarketer. Um,
1: I didn't know that.
3: A month, yeah, a month after, like this is literally everything that's happened in this film. No, I'm. I'm not kidding. Like I, I got a job as a telemarketer a month after I graduated high school to pay for the Roots demo, um, and then, kind of, the choices in life that you have to make to to better yourself that you feel that might not be that damaging to your friends or whatnot. You know, to belong to a community and then the separation of that community. I'm, I'm trying not to spoil alert it or whatever, but some of the guilt that you feel because of your personal elevation versus your your community that you initially started with, issues with that, that particular scene uh, that you were talking about t- to do certain actions, like, you know, which th- it's, it's the equivalent of, like, dance, tap dance, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, the idea of uh, um, being in environments in which, the fetish culture of of when other people are sort of interested in your uh, one dimensional life or seen as a primitive exotic, you know. Someone told me long ago that um, it's like you well, you you have this great primitive exotic thing going on because like you know the way you look, and then it's like, but then when you speak, it's like like you went to Harvard and da 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 da. So it's like it's almost. No, yeah, like the first three years, that whole like I let it work for me. Like, okay, okay, you you speak so well that that whole thing that even Obama had to go through. He speaks; he's so eloquent. Like everything about this film was just oh my god! It was it was fucking with me, and it, it was almost like at the end of it, I had to sit. I sat in a a, a bar. I first saw it at uh, the Nighthawk in 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 Brooklyn. And I just sat there, and I just kept pondering, like, what was my life? Because like? everything I saw in this film, i related to it and never thought that I could even tell people about this without the mocking of, oh, Chris, a little small violent, like that sort of thing. So it's, it's almost like, uh, thanks. No, no, I'm, like, that's why I'm here. Like, I never knew that anyone else even thought on that level of 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 just the 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 part of my friends the the mind fuck that that it is when you're an isolated person in a workspace with people that are not like you and the amount of metaphorical tap dancing that you have to do to sort of maintain your 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 sanity sometimes it's it's crazy
2: so well I'm glad that it it Reaches people. That's one of the most exciting things about this is, you know, folks being able to talk about things that they didn't have uh, the catalyst to talk about it with first. And so, um, yeah, thank you know, thanks for sharing that too because uh, I, I you know I I feel like a lot of these things are things that we know. Like nobody thought this stuff was a secret, but nobody really. Uh, often people don't talk about what other things it drives what, what, um, and, and talk about it in the context of uh, people thinking of their their existence. I, I wanted to make a character here that um, was different than, I don't know, and I, I'm hoping I'm wrong and someone could tell me, but I hadn't really seen any other black characters portrayed as even thinking about themselves in the context of time and space and in the context of the world, or, you know, and and you know, thinking about them and why they're here, and and for, and, and as far as I know, I think that's something that's universal that humans do, right? And usually, when black characters are created, even the ones that are supposed to be, you know, th- sympathetic characters, they are. It's all about. I just gotta pay the rent. Or I got to, you know, there's this thing I'm trying to the climb and be on top of the world or whatever, but it has nothing to do with, like, we lose the humanity there. And so that's why that part is there in the first scene. It, it's funny you say that, because um, I believe it was in the,
3: in the Poetic Justice director's commentary or somewhere that I saw, when you're on a tour bus and you watch yeah. movies, you know, you whatever criterion collections and you know you watch all the the director's commentaries John Singleton made a point about Tupac's character Lucky how initially he said his point was to make him the first existentialist uh black character ever on film that thought about his existence and there's a scene like where they're when they're on the beach and none of them are talking to each other and they're just thinking in their heads and he he! I remember him making such a big deal of the fact that you know, like you never see black characters think and ponder about their lives or whatever and that sort of thing. And then he said that he was forced to edit like for for the sake of time. Like that scene was like way sprawling and longer, in which Tupac was thinking about if I have a future, will I live to be this long? Will I have kids? Mm, can she be the mother of my children? Like that sort of thing. And it was like he was so proud of that moment because he's like never in the history film has he ever seen a black character have any thoughts outside of kind of the the, the one-dimensional box or caricatures that film characters or were allowed to have especially back in late 1994 so yeah I, I mean i definitely noticed like wow you actually manifested like something that i saw 20 years ago or tried to you know see 20 years ago in, in singleton's film that he wasn't even able to bring forth
1: and
2: so you're saying he cut that out because
1: he had to, to cut
3: know. it out for yeah. for time's sake yeah
1: um boots one of the things that you touched on just now is also the idea that if you have a, a like perhaps there have been some strides in allowing allowing <laughs> a black character on screen to have a more like existentially deep experience but it has conscribed qualities like they think about they think about making rent they think about like where their mom's gonna end up, or what have you? And I think you know your film not only is pretty narratively radical, but there's clearly a lot of thought in how to make it um, aesthetically radical too. I think what you described happens not just in terms of what story points are available, but you know a, an example that I've liked to use from the last couple of years is Moonlight. That when I watched that, it like blew my mind. That this director was using La Paloma to tell a story of, like, inner-city 1980s Miami. And that, like, as as an artist, you can use whatever tools make sense to tell the story, not that, like... X equals Y, if you're a black person in this sort of socioeconomic place, you, can, you only listen to this music. We only make films that look like this. Can you talk a little bit about the, the filmmaking process, like how you wanted it to look and the tone and the rhythm and how that all worked with sort of your political message?
2: Yeah, um, so I, first, being someone that has had music that gets categorized as political and I say categorized as political because I think all art is political. It's all having a viewpoint in some way. And especially scary is the art that we think is not political um, because it's just repeating the status quo. So we think that it's just, quote, unquote, regular or <laughs> you know something like that. And But because of that, I've realized that my best bet is I never was able to like make something that other people were doing, I wasn't good at that, is just to make something that I love and and that means me being open to all of my, because early on it was with with the music, it was like, this is what hip hop is, all these other influences I have are not what hip hop is and so let me carve out this thing that I think people want and uh, it didn't work either. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, that my best bet is to make something that I really like, even with all of my influences that might be strange, might be weird or whatever, or or just... And by that, I just mean not usual in that genre. So taking that same thing with this, this film, uh, I... I, I I was looking for a feeling that I hadn't seen in a lot of film, and which th- that represents something about life. And, and, and what, we, what, what I kept trying to put forward, you know, even before we got people on board to help me make that, was this idea of a beautiful clutter. That a lot of times when people get the ability to do their thing, especially like black music and sometimes in independent black film, I've seen, noticed this idea of, we wanna show that it's quote unquote quality. So it's clean, things are, you know, sparse and kind of like, um, you know, and, 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 and I would also get that critique from, folks in Oakland sometimes when um, when, you know because it's a small town and when you come from a place like that people say you represent them and they really mean that like you're an elected official and you got to listen to me (laughs) right (laughs) like you need to be making your beats more clean you representing us this needs to sound like this that sort of thing and so it's it's this aesthetic that I think is is you know very attached to other things um that that is kind of maybe the opposite of what sometimes is considered like a punk aesthetic kind of real rough around the edges that's considered like oh you didn't have enough money to do it right or something like that but i think then it it that discounts a lot of other things that really are black like kind of a collage thing like a Uh, Jacob Lawrence sort of a thing where where you're putting together all of these pieces Uh, so and I think that that aesthetic exists in our life and sometimes when we make art we get rid of that and so I wanted to lean further into that that feeling so I you know just kept collecting pictures that like his room is from a picture that that I got from a uh a documentary about what was a no black Lee Scratch Perry, um, Lee Scratch Perry in his doc in one of his documentaries he shows he has kept Bob Marley's room preserved, and there's a picture of it with all the stuff, and we just copied that room, and it was I mean basically we we put our own stuff there, but um, it was like I was like that's his room. Um, because that, that went for that aesthetic so I, I went for that kind of chaos and messiness and um there's a filmmaker that I love that that does that uh, more of the chaos part which is Emir Costa Rica he has some racist parts of his films but I still like get something from it um so he has a film called Black Cat White Cat and another one called Underground and um there's the, the movement. He has a lot more movement in the camera than I do, but there's this, this kind of chaos that happens, so I wanted to put that into the production design. Um, and I, I also, you know, I wanted to make sure that we pushed the envelope, but not too much. I wanted the world to be recognizable, like but we needed to push it with colors and... Um, with sizes of things and 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 still kind of keep it keep it cluttered and, and filled with things. And and that even went to the costume design where Deirdre Govan, um, our costume designer, had it like layered with all kinds of different prints and things like that. And if you notice as he get climbs the ladder, things get cleaner. Things get colder and um and and really I you know like, I took it upon myself to, like, just re-enroll myself in film school, basically. Not literally. I, I started out in film school, and, and when we got our record deal, I, was, I had been in film school, and we, I quit. But this was, like, me me now knowing I am going to make a movie. How do I learn more about this? And it's a different kind of learning than maybe when you're in school. You're like, this is going to happen. So here's what I'm taking in. So I did everything from, there's a book called The Visual Story that I got a lot of help from. It's by Bruce Block. I had heard that out of all people, it was like, it's like a Bible of Pixar, you know, yeah. And um, it really just kind of helped me organize my thoughts about it because I had all these ideas and it, it, it helps you think about things in terms of rhythm and chart it out and things like that. So it gave me, that, and it also gave me vocabulary. Like, even in music, I don't really have the vocabulary, but the musicians I work with know what I'm talking about when I say make it sound like a wet Corvette on a Saturday night. They know what I'm, you know. But there are terms for that. I just don't right. know it. <laughs> you know. Um, but when you're working with 100 people, you need to know the terms because it's going to be hard to explain that. Um, and so that, that helped me out a lot. I have a question um, knowing knowing
3: artists the way that I do, and pure uh artists um I noticed that their number one character trait uh sad to say is sabotage like there's two types of artists there's there's mass produced artists that are that are very effective in and in, in generating their art and They do it in mass quantities and they have these grand ideas and all that stuff and then there's artists that have that spark and then they'll put a teaspoon of self-sabotage in there and it never manifests i just just for the sake of numbers i would like to know from the moment you said i'm crafting the script called sorry to bother you to completion how long did that take and knowing the, the uphill battle that you had. I don't know what your grand vision of it. I don't know if you thought like, okay, well, we're taking this shit to Cannes. And then, you know, which, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, some d- filmmakers don't have those grand visions of conquering the awards. Or, you know, they just want to complete it and they're satisfied. And some want to conquer the world. But just from the spark of the idea to developing it, to fruition, to when you first
2: handed your first script to whomever it was, what was that time period? Well, the spark of the idea, it's hard for me to trace it, but I can trace to where I was sitting in a hotel room and just tired of what I was doing at the time. And I had been saying that I was gonna write a script and I just went on finaldraft.com and bought Final Draft
3: Oh, not the beta version, but the actual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Everyone gets the beta stuff. version
2: and thinks that uh, I'll, yeah. I'll get away with that. That's dope. Yeah, but you can't save it. So, right, right. so I, I did. Know. I did do that I first. Know. I uh, got the free version. I was like, oh, that, I could That's just when I gave this. up. I was like, i oh, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I sat and and downloaded and I sat there and I wrote like, started writing like a quarter of a page and it, it formats it. Like, so that it... Because I wouldn't know what the exact format is supposed to be, but it's like, oh, description. Here's a description. Cash a screen, sits in the, the, the manager's office holding a, a trophy. And, um, you know, it started... It looked like a script. I got it like a quarter of a page down. I was like, damn, I'm writing a script. <laughs> and uh, that was 2011. That was early 2011. And by early 2012 it uh, it was uh done and i had already started working on an album and mid 2012 we put out an album of the same name which was my my idea was we would i'd have this album and originally when i started writing it i was like look i'm going to make this this uh one location workplace comedy and um and I will get just me and whatever friends I could get to be in it, it's gonna be one location, we're gonna do it for $50,000, I'm gonna get the get Epitaph, which was the label at the time, to like give me like just the promotion money and we're gonna just do this and that'll be the promotion. And, but every time I kept taking that journey with Kat, because what I did was I knew there was gonna be, it was gonna be at a telemarketing, in the telemarketing world, I knew there was gonna be a struggle, but and and i i knew the opening scene because that's how my friend rob ebo always got his jobs and but he never got caught and oh so that was real yeah and um yeah he would he would be like you know he'd have like it would be like the busboy at the restaurant he ha- would be his friend and he'd be like tell people to call for you know Call for Juan. He's the manager, but Juan is the busboy.
3: Right.
2: And uh, the person would call and ask for Juan, and like, oh, I'm calling about Robert Ebo. How you know? Anyway, so wait, I'm sitting here smiling like, yo, I need to try that. Like, I'm gonna actually
3: <laughs> go for the meter D job at 11
2: Madison or something like. Okay. And uh, and then I knew there there is an argument because we're on. Uh, We're we're streaming. We're going to not talk about certain spoilers before they happen. But there's an argument scene that happens between Cassius and his friend Sal outside the telemarketing office. And that had happened to my little brother like years before. And I always like, man, I'm going to put that in a movie one day. (laughs) So I had those, but I didn't have anything else. And I just, after that interview scene, I was like, oh, damn, this is going to be boring if we have to stay in this office <laughs> and so i was really like okay now let me take them home oh, we can figure that out maybe make a bedroom in the same building that we do that and then um you know like location wise it just kept growing and growing and um but also i kept figuring out like as i you know for me when i'm creating i realize i'm all w- with it and and I think a lot of people, the first thing that you do when you imagine something is sometimes very cliched. Like, if you think of us, like, I'm going to write a love song, it's going to fit into, you're going to think about these parameters that are already there. Because a lot of times what's in our mind is really um, not so much our experiences, but the experiences of other artists as they fed it to us. So, for instance, I've I've never been to Delhi in India, but um i have a picture in my head of delhi and what people are wearing on the street and what the cars look like and the sounds and all that and i've never specifically even seen a documentary um about delhi but i know i've seen james bond movies and stuff like that that have put these pictures in my head and so if i were to write a scene about that it would have that so I've already learned that I have to like, parse out my real experiences. And more just like, not because on some, cause maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe cliche is all right. Maybe we want to sing the same song. Maybe there's something unifying about that. But um, for me, like, I, I think that it helps me to like not do that and to to have stuff that represents my experience. So. I'm always thinking about, well, what's my real experience here? Like if you write a breakup scene, you see so many breakup scenes that look the same, talk, say the same thing, but if you've ever broken up with somebody, it doesn't fit at all that dialogue. And so this is me like figuring out, okay, what do I think about this? And then when I really get down to it, I know that my thoughts and my experiences have a lot to do with my ideas of it in context. So all these ideas I have about the world, ph- philosophical ideas, if you will, or whatever. And how do I get that in there? Do I have like a character come say, well, you know, this is the way it is, you know, message and, you know, <laughs> um, or, and what I found was easier and more effective, let's say, like by easier, not, not feeling forced is, is, um, when I bent the reality of the world that I created. Because then it kind of reflected back onto the reality that we have here. So then I started kind of going down that, like I started this out not knowing there were gonna be fantastical elements or absurdist elements, but then realizing what I needed to talk about was best reflected with those things. and, and, And that just kept going anyway, so. Uh, 2012, we put out the, that album. It didn't. Um, that album did not help us get this movie made. <laughs> and uh, and so by 2014, I, I had given up. I had gone through a period of being like, well, maybe somebody, maybe I can't get this made. Maybe somebody else could direct it, and um, then I could direct the second movie I write. And um, I had even hit up uh, this dude, Richard I a Day. Um, oh. Yeah and yeah okay. and he was like, look man, I'm not gonna direct this, but I'm also gonna I'm also gonna demand that nobody else directs this but you, <laughs> because nobody else is going to you know in the in the script it's like very detailed because I w- I wanted people to read it and feel like they were watching the movie. Wait, can, uh, just have one interruption.
3: Who, who's your your inner circle, like? Chefs will have sous chefs and like at least seven or eight people to say, okay, that needs salt. Or if you're in a jam session or if you're Mm -hmm. with musicians, there's a collaboration process. But, um, and even people that write books will give, you know, pages of manuscript, whatever, and say, what do you think?
2: Who are you like? Do you have access to. For screenwriting? Yeah, like. Well, I created it. I created an inner circle, but when I started, I didn't have one. You know, I kind of just reached out to people. Like, I, to get in touch with Richard day, I just had all my Twitter followers... Um, Stalk hit, him? Yeah, hit him up and say, follow Boots Riley. He wants to DM you.
3: Yeah, I'm learning and, so much today, man. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and he was... And, and, and so I didn't have him, but... And I, I had hit up Ted Hope. Ted Hope actually gave me some notes. Um... And so I like really like just kind of stalked people and like got them to, because first of all, nobody wants to read a musician's script. You know?
3: Which part two was, how did you get them to take you seriously? Like I know one of your actors on this, I know how they finally, their eyes were open like, oh shit, via, yeah. via their uh, assistant who read the script yeah, was like, yeah, yeah. yo, you yeah, really- that was- David Cross, yeah, Cross like yeah. was gonna.
2: So David Cross, curve man, you. David Cross and Pat Oswald were the first ones to 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 sign on to this when there was no money, no nothing, no producer, and it was because um, I had done a show I had with him like years before, and I had his email, hit him up, said I got this script, and um, he was like, sure, send it to my house or whatever, and what I found out later was that he had no real intention of reading it. Because again, you know, as a musician with a script, right. like, of course you want to make a movie. You probably also want a clothing line and <laughs> to do uh, a restaurant. And so, you know, you just want to do shit. And <laughs> the, the quality is suspect, right?
0: <laughs>
1: Um, because you guys are both artists, could we talk for a second about Tessa Thompson's character? And I, I want to for a, a couple of reasons. Um, one of which is well, or I guess the main one is that tension of of trying to make your art, but also trying to be aligned with, with like labor movement, like be sort of being on the right side of social justice. And I think your film plays with a lot of that tension. Like the 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 joke that's in the trailer where he's railing at his like working class uncle about like the workers' movements and being like a corporate fat cat. And he's like, but I am your uncle. You are my family, <laughs> and you're, you're dependent on me. So, so that, you know, how do you, how do you work with that tension and build it into the script in a way that, you know, pokes fun but doesn't also make it feel totally futile to try and, like, push forward with a better economic system?
2: So I've been answering questions like this a lot on this tour, and it really came to me right now that I really don't know um, you know, like, I, I I, have ideas of what I did, and I think that's, like, the scariest part is, like, you're, like, okay, like, so many people are explaining to, you know, in reviews, like, this is what he did. I and felt like, like she was your voice. Yeah, I, definitely. I felt like, actually, okay, which what one, I mean. what, and I, then I felt like she was you. Yeah, well, in reality, I wrote all the characters as myself. I did imagine and, if you
1: played all the parts and that,
2: that was that was the way that I ensured like i I put humanity in there. It was that like i I feel like i I think that we all are way more alike than we are different, and it sounds like some hippie shit, but you're from the bay Area, so you know um but really, like we use different you know we've been through different situations that cause different things anyway so I wrote it like someone playing chess with themselves so if it's an argument you know like I'm, I'm doing that I didn't wrote it, write it like this is what that kind of person would say I got in tune with my um the aspects of myself that was like that person and for all intents and purposes all those characters the main characters are just parts of me there's the artist there's the organizer there's and and there's the person trying to figure out why the hell they're here and what they're going to do um, with themselves and um and then there's the dude that's just saying funny stuff or doing funny stuff to kind of deflect things anyway so let's be clear though the actors did bring a whole nother layer to it, But there's a conflict there, a conflict and an alliance with, between the artist and the organizer. And that's like the struggle that I'm always having. And, and yeah, I think that the artist is the one I'm closest to that I, that I you know, whose conflict, the, the conflict that she's having is one that I'm always dealing with. And actually one that the film itself is talking about and um questioning
1: so I have one more question then I'd love to open it up to the audience and this is for each of you um, which is about like the the kind of work that you do outside of what's on screen or in your music you've both explored such a variety of things and I think um, you can correct me if I'm wrong but kind of the link that I see between your organizing and you moving into like this culinary space is that maybe it's partly about the street, being in the streets, I guess, like like being in a community um, and present in a community and, and, and bringing people together, but I'd love to hear you talk about it.
3: Um, I guess for me, uh, once I started my Fallon day job, that allowed me, I'm, I'm always been a, I've always been a person more interested in the, the engine more than the actual car. And the journey to me was always much more fun than the actual destination. And so for me, observing uh, writers' rooms, watching comedians struggle, like, you know, it's, it's one thing to see Patton Oswalt or Chappelle or whoever, Chris Rock at, you know, Madison Square Garden or that thing, but it's a whole nother thing to watch them struggle for two hours at, you know, uh, laughing in Cleveland or, you know, some, but to me, that's the best part of the whole process. So, for, I, I guess that my favorite thing of all is to watch a community of people. So, if it's a bunch of chefs, you know, I, I always wondered, like, it started with a question, like, do chefs have jam sessions? And then I found out my answers, like, yeah, you know, we, we have ideas where we just sit and think, like, okay, how can I make this vinegar and this salt, uh, work in a kid's Saturday morning cereal, which instantly your mind's like, yeah. But then <laughs> or I once watched a chef make what he called a banana split out of a, a, a toss salad. And somehow he managed to organically grow these uh the lettuce tasted like vanilla and he grew these tomatoes that were like strawberries and everything. Like it with my eyes closed, I was like, yo, this is really a Mr. Softies banana split, but I was eating a salad, you know? So t- just to watch the, the creative process, that's the part that like fascinates me the most. So I guess when I'm not creating, like I, I'm, more, I'm, I'm more get off watching other people struggle, not struggle in a negative way, but sort of deal with their ABCDFG options of their craft before you get to the end. That's why I love documentaries. That's why
1: I was gonna say I love... you have documentary filmmaker brain.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you uh, like want to watch you know. how it happens. And speaking of that, yeah. there's a bartender in Ypsilanti, Michigan, that can make uh, a, a cocktail shot that tastes like whatever food you ask for. <laughs> so they could make. I'm there. Wait, how do you know about Ypsilanti? Is that? Okay. that I... Wait, how do you pronounce it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Wait, y'all sitting next to each other and didn't know that?
2: <laughs> yeah, it, uh, yeah, no, just on tour. And that was like the most amazing thing. I mean, I wouldn't want it every day, but you could be like you be like, yeah, I want to um, I want I want a how you say? It? G- gyro. How you say it? I don't know. Gyro. Gyro. Yeah. I want a gyro. Well, that would be together. a strange thing to ask for, but yeah. yeah. I, I, no, because you're I trying to stump her. Oh, exactly. You know, you're trying to, st- you know, because ice cream is easy. Yeah. Anyway, I just want to, you know. No, now, not for salad. For salad, it's not easy. Now, for salad, now, it's not now easy. Now I've got to
3: make a pilgrimage up there to, yeah. to, to test her gangster. Um, Did I? Oh, well, was the, the question.
1: The, yeah, I guess like uh, the experience of of organizing, why you still do that, and why that's an important um, part of work and life for you, and what 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 it does differently than yeah. making the film.
2: Well, I mean, I have to admit, like I've been an organizer at different times in my life, and for me, it's always it's hard. I can't do both, you know. Like I'm not you know i'm not good at writing i just do it like and it takes a long time for me like i have to sit there and i always forget how to write an album and then i'm sitting there struggling doing mechanical things like let me put this together with that and it just doesn't and then all of a sudden i remember oh this is what i do and and then it you know then it like really gets going but I, you know, even though I know that, and I consciously know that, like it's just something with my brain, and 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 you know, I I just do it. So it takes up a lot of my brain space. It takes up a lot of my time. Um, and when I don't have that time, I'm not happy with what I've made. Um, so the and, and, although I've made some songs, some songs that people love, like. 5 million ways to kill a CEO I lied and said that the out al- that that the first only way we could get the album out on time was if the first single was in in 3 hours and I made that you know like right then that's like a one you know like I normally wouldn't be able to do that but anyway so it takes up a lot of my time and then when I'm organizing that's also an art like talking to people uh you know all sorts of problems happen. everybody's arguing. people want to kill each other. All that sort of thing, and you know you're figuring out your place in that and building relationships and so you know I've had times in my life where i've quit doing the music and done that and start so it but but the organizing in really informs the music it like helps me to think helped me to think about what um how people talk what people think about what are the things that that matter um what are the what are the actual questions that I need to be asking and answering and um
1: and who are you speaking to like who, who who's listening you know
2: yeah definitely um so but you know a lot of times people will throw that on there and I can't correct everybody every time like organizer but I feel like there's a way where I could use that too much to, in an opportunist sort of way. And the reality is, is that it's usually one or the other. But as an artist, I try to lend myself to other campaigns and like, okay, you need us to perform or you, know, you need me to speak or something like that. But I, separately from that, because some people are watching it, I also think it's lazy to get the coup to your political rally. Like, <laughs> you know, huh? No, it is, because the people that are going to come see the coup are going to be at your rally anyway. Speaking to the you know, well, You quieter. know, like, you need to get somebody else and, you know, break outside of that bubble and bring somebody else to your rally.
1: And I have to say on that note that it was really satisfying to watch a film that's, you know, fun and big and pretty punk rock that's also... Kind of nitty gritty about how a union works <laughs> and like how how like labor movements work um, and why they're important. Um, so I think that that came that came to the screen.
3: Can I can I jump the the can I be the first of the audience people to ask a question? Yeah. I told you I'm, I'm not even here to promote me. Um, do you not not the the technical word of jinx, but. What I'm saying is that now that the heat is on, and and the buzz is around Hollywood, I'm certain that everybody and their mother is coming to you like, "Yo, you know, develop, uh, or come to Paramount and develop this, or shoot this Netflix movie for 42 billion dollars or whatever." (laughs) So, not are you worried about the sophomore jinx? Because I assume that you have a few other scripts in your arsenal, but. Will you feel superstitious about breaking the creative process that got you here? Only, okay, only from a musical standpoint. I'll put it this way. When the infamous 1997 flood happened in Staten Island in the Rizzo's basement, then he was like, well, we're super platinum now. Let's go to LA to this glamorous studio out here and create these Wu-Tang records. And then the quality totally changed because he wasn't in that dingy basement making those six classic Wu-Tang records that his environment, or when Prince finally got Paisley Park, suddenly the work got more cleaner and it wasn't in his bedroom. So as far as your process and your creative process is concerned, are you going to stick to the same coffee shop that you wrote the script in and the same bedroom? and Like, are you... Nervous at all about the now that you yeah.
2: will have a budget and that's Yeah, of I thing. mean, you you think about that, especially if Questlove is jinxing you by asking yeah. you. I'm sorry.
3: Problem? <laughs> no, no, <But> no.
1: Publicly, <laughs> <laughs> publicly. The
2: uh, but the the
3: uh, because I'm certain now you will have a real a, a super budget and you could buy a building and have a staff. Yeah, and but if guy. my
2: budget gets bigger than my. You know like whatever wherever my budget is, the thing I want to do is over here, so it's always going to be like a, a relative thing um, but and, and and I have like i've because I've had 20 years of wanting to make movies, and I have a good 20 ideas, oh. thirteen of them are, you're straight, thirteen of them are good. <laughs> and a bunch of those are great and um the the but 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 no it's yeah the process is something it took me a long time and I and I think about that it took a long time to do it and I benefited from that amount of time but the thing is is that I didn't have the context to uh talk to all the people that I talked to it would be like I got this person to read it and then took them because they didn't really want to read it took me like Two months of pestering them for the, them to ever read the script, and then five months after that, this other person that really knows what they're talking about reads it. You know, so that sort of so I did have those back and forth with people that I was just like reaching out to, and so I can com- now I can compress that time. I can be like, okay, what do you? Think I'm sure about now this? everyone's knocking on your door. Like,
3: where's the next one? So.
2: Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I have a deal to do uh, television show um and it's whatever i want to do um and it's with uh michael ellenberg's company media res he's the guy that or uh, well, one of the guys that brought game of thrones to hbo and um then um and then that's my friend jeremy laughing at that for some reason and and uh then uh then i have a, a feature deal which i can't talk about but it's still whatever i want to do um, so yeah, those are, those are there and I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's a weird thing because, um, I'm always like, I look at my last project and be like, okay, that didn't work. How do I, cause I've always, you know, I thought when we signed, uh, to wild pitch, I was like, we're going to have two platinum albums and I'm going to quit and do organizing. So everyone thought that. Yeah. 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 And, um, so my dreams were always way bigger than what I had done. So I was like, okay, that didn't work. What do I do and still stick with the things that I feel are good and how do I make it bigger? So that's always been a drive. Um, luckily, I don't think we're going to do as many numbers as Get Out, so I have a drive to get to, you know what I'm saying?
3: Have you read your Metacritic score? <laughs> yeah, you, but this, this could do that.
2: Yeah, maybe. But the point is, is that, you know, so I just have to look for my goals are way bigger than also than those numbers. There are things that I want it to do. The goals have to do with what how I want it to affect people and how I want it to affect the world. So that that those are the you know, I always have to have something that I'm driving for. And that's that's all I need to do is figure out what that drive is. And I have some ideas about that. So we'll see. Maybe it'll suck.
1: (laughs) Stop saying. Um, We have time for a few questions and it seems like we have more more than a few questions. Okay, Um, I'm gonna start with you.
4: Um, No, first and foremost, thank you so much um, for y'all being here, thank you for this film. I legit DM'd you as soon as I saw this film in the middle of the night and just like freaked out and said I should just say thank you and just leave. Um, (laughs) Nah, but uh, when I think about this film, I can't help but think about Killer of the Sheep Mm. on acid. And I can't help but think about how it's in the violence that um, a lot of us are made, but even more so, they're in the moments of the silence where we listen to ourselves hearing Dina Washington in the background singing Bitter Earth, that we really hear some truth. So I'm wondering from an artistic perspective, from a filmmaker, where was the moment that you got to listen to yourself, balancing the external violence of the world and the self-inflicted violence that these characters would put upon themselves. You're saying the moments in my real life the, or the moments in the film? The, mom, the moments in your real life where you're able to sit with yourself and balance the two.
2: Well, when you're writing and, and are stuck for ideas, you're sitting with yourself a lot. And so I, I, I had a lot of those moments. and um, But yeah, you have to kind of... Well, it's always... Um for me, very self-reflective, sometimes um I'll write, and I always did this with songs, like I'll be like, I'll lose exactly what it is that I set out to do because you're kind of coming up with some stylistic things and like, okay, am I getting away from myself uh, or the idea and so i'll for me, I'll like write an essay or not really an essay, but just like a brainstorm of my thoughts about the thing and it might be like a whole like two pages of something that kind of really doesn't make sense. But then there it, it it helps me center what I'm thinking, because, yeah, that's a problem, especially now with social media and everything. I have to like go someplace where I don't ha- ha- have uh, Internet or, you know, because you'll want to look things up. You'll want to talk to people about it like because that's like how we are, we're social beings. So yeah, um, during it, I, I, I did that a lot. And, and uh, you know, you, you mentioned Killer of Sheep. And for me, those sorts of things are, are, are folks that um, it wasn't just about what they were trying to say, it was how they were trying to say it. And um, one of the first people I called up after I finished writing the script was Arthur Jaffa, and um, had like a four hour conversation with him. And um, just on the, I don't, you know, cause I had heard or read a transcript of something he was talking about creating a new black cinematic language. And I really didn't understand anything he was saying, (laughs) but I knew that I liked the idea. (laughs) And so I called him up and we had a long talk and I don't, still. I don't know what I got from it. <laughs> but but you got it. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I remember like him saying, like, yeah, Spike was holding me back on Crookland. I was gonna turn that shit out. Or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, wow, okay, I wanna be that. I wanna, you know, I I want to have these cinematic goals. I want to. Um, it's it's not just about what I'm saying, it's about how I'm saying it. And um, so I I was constantly keeping that in my mind Um, because you, you get a chance to make a movie, you might as well do it really well, you know, so.
3: I've also yet to meet an artist or a director or anyone in the arts that can properly or I guess eloquently explain their particular personal process with it, at least without time, like when they're in the moment, I think it's hard for them to to come outside of that bubble to see exactly the impact that's having and that sort of thing. Like time, it sort of has to go by for them to really understand it. So maybe that's why his four hour explanation even occurred.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think that sometimes if you're media savvy, I could come up with all sorts of things that work and ring, you know, and people will quote it and all that kind of stuff, but will it be actually true? And I'm trying to say things that maybe help other writers or other filmmakers, and it's really elusive. Like, there are so many things I think about when I was watching that trailer um, that almost made it bad. Like, um, the wig that we had for him that that almost got ordered for him like it's a wig that he's wearing and you know definitely everybody's always trying to cut costs and somehow and I had at one point gotten um I forget her name but she did all the wigs on key and peel and I talked to her because I mean their wigs are good are good and I talked to her about it and somebody along the line kind of when they're trying to make a budget, like switched it to somebody else. And, um, and she was just going to like make the wig and then come and it got, and luckily I caught it in time because it would have been a joke if it looked like a wig, you know, and it would have made the whole movie would have just been not for just little things like that, like that could easily like escape you and, and make, the, the whole thing feel a different way and so those are details that I can control but there are other things in the process that is our improvisation and luckily work sometimes
1: other questions peace peace congratulations thank you uh, Tembisa. Good to see you yes my question is really a, um, a mechanical question about the filmmaking after you got the script and everything. What was the journey to getting to your producers? Um, Nina Yang Ban Jovi and Charles King and I think that having producers of color or producers who, you know, sort of understand this material um really makes a huge difference. And I'm I'm not clear that this movie could have gotten made ten years ago necessarily. So, you know, talk a little bit about that and how that has eased the process for you as a writer-director, or you know,
2: yeah. Um so I, I thought I was going to put it out on the internet because um, I didn't think I could get it made. I ran into Dave Eggers, who publishes McSweeney's as this writer, and I, I, I ran, into, ran him.
1: into him. You ran into him?
2: Really? I ran into him on the street, on Valencia Street in San Francisco. That's so random. And yeah,
1: I thought you were being figurative. <laughs> no,
2: like, I mean, I didn't literally <laughs> collide with him, but... Um, and I said, hey, you know, I have this screenplay, and I think I'm going to put it out on the internet. Because at this point, I'm like, I, damn, I can't get it made. At least I want people to know that it existed. And maybe 20 years from now, people will be like, did you know Boots Riley wrote this screenplay one time? You know, and um, so I was like, can you give me some notes? Because I want to tighten it up more and before I put it out. And then he was like, you know, he said what he said publicly later, which was, this is one of the best unproduced screenplays I've ever read and let me put it out as its own paperback book Um, and he put it out uh, screenplay format but bound like a book and packaged with the McSweeney's quarterly so it went out to like 10 or 20,000 people that read the quarterly and he was his whole thing was like look man everybody reads this you can get it out and this is 2014 by this time then um, I used that to uh, inspire me to—I mean—that inspired me to go join SF Film as a filmmaker in residence. Then um, I met two of the early producers, uh, Jonathan Duffy and George Rush. I applied to Sundance Writers Lab in 2015, got in, um, which also then, you know, made it seem like a real thing. Like maybe you should read this script when I send it to you, because all these folks are, are down with it. Um, Sunday, it's all, saw, through SF Film, I met Nina Yang Bon Jovi, um, who was interested in it, but still, I had never made a film before, you know, and it was, uh, the, the, there's a scene in it that was much bigger before that I had to figure out how, and we can talk about after the stream ends, what it was, but that I had to reduce um but at that time so it was like wow how much is this really going to cost so that was something in there and then uh sundance brought me to the catalyst um program which is they picked 12 projects to make a pitch in front of 60 investors or people that want to invest in stuff and you know um in this, you spend a weekend at the at the at the resort drinking and rubbing elbows and making presentations. And that's where I met Charles King from Macro. Uh, that's where I met uh, Phil Engelhorn from Center Reach and and, uh, and and Gus Deardoff from the space program. And Gus is a young dude. He's got money. He's like in his 20s. And he was like, I just want to be part of this. And he gave us right, right then, signed up to give us development money. And by this point, I had been not touring so that really in really questioning my responsibility uh, my ability to handle responsibilities and so development money helped us to go on I got into the director's lab and then people started taking it more seriously and um, eventually conned people into putting money into it
1: (laughs) Um, we have time for one more there was a, a prop and I was looking for what the word was
2: for when you see a prop in a movie and you don't get the prop until the very end. So I asked a couple of people and then Byron Sanders told me that the word is plot device. Now this is a spoiler alert, but I love
4: this. Can we ask this once we turn off
2: the the thing? We will ask a spoiler thing after, because there are people watching. I think it's this camera. A few billion people. There are people watching online that haven't seen the movie. There's enough people in here who've seen it, huh? Okay, we can let. Once we turn off the camera, you can go and cover your ears. We. Yeah, we can't talk about the end until we, Facebook we
1: is off. We can turn off the streaming, streaming now because ha- this is our last Okay,
2: yeah, this is the last question. question so.
1: So, so we'll it we a well juicy, spoilery question. Thank you.
2: Go see the movie.
1: The movie. <laughs> Wait, we just cut them off like that? <laughs> I love
2: it. Right, they're they're so can I say the prop now?
1: Yeah.
2: The prop was an apple mm. early on in the movie.
4: Great. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Wait a
3: minute! <laughs> <laughs> we went through all. Like, get Facebook back online, man. Okay, exactly. So, were you asking? Was there any symbolism behind the apple? Or
2: well, it's connected to other stuff. Yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Well, that was a really joyful note to end on. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm
0: Or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, or Kindle.